But so 2 Kings chapter 4, a topical uh, message, if you will. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hand, and we can even make sure it's turned to 2 Kings 4. Starting in verse 1, I'm going to read um, the seven verses that start the chapter, uh, uh, or sorry, 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Starting with verse 1, a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, what do you want or what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Then he said, go, borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons and put into all those vessels and set aside the full ones and pour into all those, and just pour it in and set aside the full ones. So he went, uh, so she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. Then she came and told the man of God. And he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debt. And you and your sons live on the rest. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would now illuminate for us what it is that you want each and every person to hear. Beyond what I've prepared, Lord, you'd speak to hearts by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this, and we know that you'll be faithful. In your name we pray. Amen. Elisha, the understudy of Elijah, you guys have all heard of both these men, I'm sure, but Elijah was the understudy of Elijah the prophet. And he took, Elisha, took the spiritual and leadership mantle as the prophet of God in Israel after Elijah. Remember, he was caught up into heaven in a chariot of fire. And back in uh, the end, in, end part of 2018, I shared a message on the transition of ministry from Elijah into the hands of his assistant, Elisha. You may recall that Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9, he actually asked for a double portion of the same spirit that was on Elijah. And not coincidentally, I don't know if you knew this, the scripture records that there's exactly twice as many miracles under the ministry of Elisha as there was under Elijah. Now, Elijah's ministry was perhaps cut short as he went up and caught up into heaven. But nevertheless, he, uh, Elisha, ended up doing twice as many miracles, or he didn't do them, God did them through him, but twice as many under his ministry than Elijah. Many of these um, miracles, both men were empowered by God to perform these miracles that oftentimes staged the righteousness of God versus the evil of Satan or the evils in this world, like empires or things that were going on around Israel. But also, there were miracles of practical use that ministered to the difficulties and the trials of life that we can relate to. Just things in life that uh, they're not way out there, they're not in some other country, they're not, as best we can tell, 
a massive battle between good and evil, but they are difficulties and they are trials. And some of those miracles dealt with those things, the personal things. Miracles of help and compassion, if you will. But equally, miracles that would test one's faith. Miracles that would test one's faith. Jesus performed a number of these, didn't he, in his earthly ministry. They were personal one-on-one miracles. And we have one here that involves a seemingly desperate situation and an opportunity for faith and for God's power to be revealed. And so Elisha, he arrives on the scene, he arrives on the scene of this village to this grieving woman, this grieving widow, whose husband has recently passed away. And she comes out to meet him. She sees he's coming. She's there to meet him. She's desperate for a couple of things. Any help at all and any guidance, wisdom, counsel, mostly the help. A lot of times, you know, when you really need help, you mostly want more help than you want someone to give you some guidance and counsel. You're like, I, you know, I got enough guidance and counsel right now. Can I have some help? But sometimes, honestly, sometimes you need both. Sometimes you truly say, I could really use counsel, really use some wisdom and help, or both. And this is kind of a both-hand situation. If you're taking notes, you see the title of our time in the Word today. Uh, When things look empty, God pours out. And that's what we want to take a look at this morning. I want to look at three things, which is pretty much my practice. For those of you that are at CCR now, we've got visitors here from a few other churches, and we're glad to have you. Uh, But uh, we'll look at three things this morning from this text, and and I hope that it uh, ministers to you and understanding a little bit about what God is doing here in her situation, but what he wants to do in some of our own. First thing, if you're taking notes, empty but asking. She says, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. The creditor is coming to take away my son. So Elisha says to her, what shall I do for you? Your maidservant, he's asked, what's in the house? Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. This woman, her husband's side of the bed is now empty. Her husband's side of the bed. Those of you that are married, you know that you have, a, you sleep that side, I sleep this side. In all our years, it has not changed. You just know your spot. But his side of the bed is now empty. The sound of his voice is silence. You know, it's only when someone's gone, you really miss their voice. Like just, if I could just hear their voice one time. No doubt her heart felt drained and empty. We don't know how long they were married. The longer people are married, the more attached they become. Should be. That's why we're investing in marriages all the time. But that's generally the way it should be, Right? But whether short or long, the impact would still be devastating. And people that are newlyweds would be devastated if they lost a spouse as well. Last year, we had two women in our fellowship lose their husbands, both to brain cancer. Uh, I mentioned this past Tuesday evening, we've got a widow on our street now that no idea on a Tuesday night would, would, would be a widow that night. That night. We live in uncertain times, but we live in uncertain bodies because we just never know. It's pointed on to us once to die, but still those left behind are grieving. And whether um, 
the death of a loved one is something you've tried to prepare for, or whether it's completely unexpected, it happens out of the blue, like an automobile accident or, or a shooting or something like that, uh, you can immediately feel empty when you didn't feel empty before. Come can come rather quickly. You can feel completely drained. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, we are promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn, and I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when things happen to oneself, not to others. And in reality, not imagination. It is different when it happens to us, isn't it? Well, we, we want everyone's prayer request when it's us. When somebody else say, we can say quick, we'll be praying. But it's really kind of out of the mind. But this is her personal <laughs> grieving. This is her personal struggle. This woman's husband had served in ministry with Elisha the prophet. At a minimum, he was a peer of a group of prophets that were under the, under the guidance of Elisha. She says right at the outset, your servant, my husband, is dead. You know she feared the Lord. And at the beginning, it tells us that he was one of the sons of the prophets. He had very likely, speaking of her husband, think about it. Her husband was a prophet. Well, he wasn't the prophet. Elisha was the head prophet, if you will. We talked about this Wednesday night. There's many in the priesthood, but there's only one high priest, right? And we, we talked about pastors and elders. You can have pastors and elders, but you have to actually still have a pastor. And in the case of the prophets, they had prophets, but Elisha was kind of overseeing the prophets. So he had very likely ministered to her husband, I'm speaking of, and perhaps his wife had even come with him on occasions. I know my wife has been with me many times ministering to people where I said, why don't you come along? You'll be able to minister to the wife or the daughters or something in ways that I can't. Now, that happens sometimes. So perhaps his wife had even gone with him at times to someone who was grieving the loss of a spouse or a family member. But this was her husband now. It was her family now. It didn't matter if she had been on uh, other visits with him, she's now been emptied all of a sudden, probably emptied of joy, of peace, of comfort, maybe even hope, kind of a hopelessness feeling. And although we don't see it here, it's not referenced in the text, it just picks up from where her and Elisha begin a conversation, although we don't see it here, I think you would agree with me, I have no doubt that prior to Elisha arriving on the scene, she's been crying to God. It says she cries out to Elisha. But I believe she'd already been crying out to God well before Elisha gets there because her husband's already been buried, emptying her soul before the Lord, asking God, how do I go on? How do I put the pieces together? Where do I start? Asking God, where is your love and your help? You ever ask God, where is your love and help? And sometimes we feel God feels a little more distant. Than, he's not. He's always near us, but that doesn't always feel that way. And now there's this empty place in her heart. And yet, that's not the end of her current woes, is it? Did you pick up some other things going on here? The death of her husband is not the end of her current woes. Now, to add worry on top of pain, she realizes that not only does she have this grief and this empty feeling and physically and emotionally spent, but her husband's bank account is empty. 
Now he's gone, the bank account is empty, and there were bills that were unpaid. It says the creditor is coming to take my two sons. The bills were unpaid, and according to Mosaic law, the creditors could, and in this case would, come and take her two young sons and put them into indentured servanthood until the debt was paid or until the year of Jubilee, which is every seven years, whichever came first. So now she realizes not only am I grieving, but my two sons are going to be gone because the creditors are coming to take them and put them into servanthood, indentured servanthood or slavery. Her husband had been working in ministry. And unlike the televangelists that are buying million-dollar airplanes, most people in ministry are not making a fortune. He said that the news likes to kind of focus on the, the relatively few. But all through the historical record of the Bible, you don't find many people in ministry getting rich. It's only a, it's only a few that are bestsellers and on TV and all that stuff. But her husband didn't make much in ministry. And it would seem, it would seem, this, this story gets great. You just follow me here. It would seem that her husband's dedication to God, she said, you know my husband feared the Lord. Now, Elisha doesn't dispute that. Elisha, remember, he worked for Elisha, in a sense. He was the pro- under-prophet. So she said, you know my husband feared the Lord. It would seem that this man in ministry left his wife with no means to survive. It would seem that he left her with no means to survive. So as she's crying out to Elisha, asking for any help and any counsel, he then asks her a question. He says, an odd request, is, what do you have in the house? Well, we've got a table, we've got, uh, we got uh, a mouse that comes in every now and then, we've got, you know, we got, you know, they start rattling off things in the house. She instinctively knows exactly what he's talking about. In context, she knows he's saying, what in the house is of value? They just understood exactly what the question was about. In the context, she, she understands this statement of saying, what is it that you have that's of any value in the house? Because in context, if they're going to take the sons, he's saying, do you have anything that you can give in lieu of the sons? By the way, Jesus a lot of times would ask questions that he knew the answer to, wouldn't he? He was classic for doing this. He would ask questions uh, that he always knew the answer to. And I believe Elisha pretty much knew she had nothing of value. Or maybe one small thing. Because she says, there is one little thing of value. Now, if something's... Value is a wide range. You can have a 24-carat ring that's about as thin (laughs) as a piece of fishing line. And it does have some value if it's 24 karat gold, but it's not the same value if you have one that's real thick and heavy, right? Because the weight of the gold uh, makes it more. So she does have something of value, but it's really small. She says, I have one little jar. The, the Hebrew word here, when she says, I have one jar of oil, this word jar, it's only used one time in the entire Old Testament, this word. This word jar. The rest of the time, he talks to her, he talks about vessels, and we'll get into that in just a second. But this word is only used once in the entire Old Testament. The little jar, it means a flask or a small jar. So it's, it's, it's small, it's like a little flask or a little jar. 
And she says, and it has oil in it. Most scholars agree that this little flask was for anointing oil. Most scholars agree that this little, this little flask, this little jar, the only term used one time in the entire Old Testament, most believe that this was anointing oil for anointing people's foreheads and anointing the body rather than the large vessels where he goes and says, borrow vessels in verse 3. We'll get to that. That vessel means receptacle, much larger. These are like pots that he's going to be talking about. But this is a little flask. And she says it has oil in it. Most scholars do believe that this was... Now, it would be the same olive oil that you could use for cooking and lighting candles, but this would have been used for anointing. Her husband probably took this when he went to visit people and to minister. This is likely his little flask. This would have been the only thing he left. And this little flask, whether her husband was using this to anoint others, we don't know for certain, but... It's the only thing left in the house that she says that's of some value. It could be sold maybe to buy one meal, right? Go back to the you know, tiny piece of gold. You could, all right, we could sell it, but maybe get one meal out of it. That's not going to save the sons, though, is it? It's got some value, but very limited value. Good luck with that and handling the creditors and the bills and your sons being carted away. So she's like, this is all I got. Kind of like the little boy that... Jesus said, I got a few fish and loaves. And the disciples said, what's that among so many, right? But God, it would appear that her husband didn't leave anything behind of value, but a little tiny thing, but God takes care of his own, doesn't he? God takes care of his own. And he has resources that Wall Street and Fidelity doesn't really know about. Did you know that? God has resources that Fidelity and the brokers and Merrill Lynch and all the rest of them, they don't know about. And the irony is that this little flask that she thought, this is all I got, it's little value, this little flask is actually a large insurance policy insured by heaven. That's really what it is. By the way, notice her humble response. She says, your maidservant. She too was a woman that feared the Lord. God's inspecting the whole family here. And God gives Elisha instructions to her, and let's take a look at what these instructions are. Uh, we read them in the text. Go borrow. He says, all right, that's all you got, that little flask? Here's what I want you to do. God left you with this little flask. You need to hold on to that, guard it with your life, but go and borrow vessels from everywhere all your neighbors. Now, the word vessels is not the same as jars I talked about. Vessels is containers, receptacles. Get, the, get any... Any jar clay you can, the bigger the better. He says, go everywhere, not just a few. He says, get a lot. I mean, make your house look like a um, pottery factory. Get as many as you possibly can, not just a few. Get a whole bunch of them. You and your sons, get cracking. Empty but assured if you're taking notes this next section. Hebrews 10.38 says, now the just shall live by faith. If you're going to put your faith and trust in Christ, it's going to have to be all in Christ. Say, well, I'm going to give Christ 10% of faith. I'm going to give 90% of all me, taking care of all the details. It's going to have to be 100% faith. And so these instructions from Elisha are going to involve faith. You're going to have to go knock on all your neighbor's doors. 
It's going to have to involve some faith. It's going to have to involve some discomfort. You're going to get your neighbors asking, why would you need jars? This is weird. Why would you need all this stuff? Why do you want our empty containers? Aren't you supposed to be grieving? It's going to take some effort, too. It's going to take a lot of work to carry all of these containers back to the house. Now, she's got her son's help, too. Isn't it interesting? I don't know if you've experienced... I know you have experienced this in your life, so I don't need to ask that question. But you'll find this, uh, hopefully, enlightening as well. Isn't it interesting that through the providence of God, he always knows us and our situations way better than we know us and our situations? We might think that throwing this curveball of the creditors coming to get her sons, we would think that God allowing this curveball on top of the fact she's deeply grieving, this curveball of the creditors coming to get her is extra cruel on the part of God allowing this to happen. Because she's already grieving, there's no money, and now the creditors coming. By the way, if God doesn't intervene, she still has no money, even if the creditors don't come, right? So God's looking past all of the things that everybody else looks at, and God's saying, no, no, no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to solve the whole problem, not just a tiny bit. Because we like to do Band-Aids, but we think aren't Band-Aids. We think they're really big, but they're not. And so God says, he looks at it, we think it's extra cruel that God would allow this to happen. But in a strange twist of the way God does things, sometimes God will let another wave that actually accelerates our healing. Another wave in the middle of something that actually accelerates our healing. I've had it happen lots of times, tons of times, where, you know, I've got this, you know, another weight's thrown on, another weight's thrown on, and then the last weight thrown on is the one that I go and minister someone, and all the weights come off. And you would think, God, don't you understand? But she's realizing, what she's realizing in the moment, she was grieving, she's realizing with her son she has a lot to live for, doesn't she? She realized, I have a lot to live for. Now, the sons are just to remind her that ultimately she has God being a lot to live for. But again, the reason why we're parents is God's given us kids to raise to his glory. So it really, the kids just remind us that we live for God. They're visible and tangible reminders for her. You have a lot to live for. These sons need to be raised up that they're someday like your husband, that they're someday like Elisha. For we live for God to minister to others, as we live for God, it always impacts others. So she takes the instructions, she follows in the letter, she goes to all the neighbors, whatever, whatever fatigue she has, she does it anyway. Whether it's discomfort, embarrassment, you name it, explaining it, having to re-explain. You know, don't you hate when you have to explain the same story like 10 times? You're like, all right, here's, I read it out for you. Everybody, you now have it. Don't ask, here it is. Here's why I'm doing it. Elisha told me to do it. I don't know how, what's, gonna, what's going on here. This is what he wants me to do. But I love that she is assured. She doesn't flinch. She's like, all right, sons, this is what Elisha, the man of God, told us to do. They're like, why are we getting a bunch of empty pots? I have no idea. That's what he said to do. She's assured that her only hope for help, her only hope for healing, her only hope for her home to be kept together is for her to be totally reliant on the Lord, totally reliant on the Word of God. The Word of God, in this case, comes through the man of God. 
the prophet is the man of God. She says, I know if there's any chance for us, it's only going to be through the word of God. Brother and sister, if there's any chance for you, it's only in the word of God. For whatever you're going through or have gone through or will go through in 2019, the only hope you have is found in the word of God. It'll be your answer. Do we believe this? Are we fully relying on the Lord with obedience? She doesn't mope and self-pity here, and she's got a lot of grief. She doesn't mope and self-pity. She doesn't say, how dare you to ask me to knock on doors in my condition? How could you ask me to knock on doors in this grieving condition? Prophet, are you not sensitive to the condition I'm in? Me and my sons, this is, we, we need just time to ourselves not to be knocking on all of our neighbor's doors. No, she trusts that reaching out is almost always reaching up. Reaching out is almost always reaching up. God deeply cares for what we're going through. But what God will always do is he'll test our desire to really trust his word. He'll test whether we'll put forth the effort in his strength. Boy, a verse that I have learned in my life, the older I've... I'll be 50 in a couple of weeks, and I know that for some of you that's super young and some of you that's ancient, so it's all all relative. I get it. But... um, the verse that says, his strength is made perfect in weakness, is not fun to learn. Can I get an amen on that? But it's true. And she's feeling or seeing that God is amplifying that truth in her life, that his strength is made perfect in weakness. She does not really have the strength to go knock on these doors. But when she, if she could see what's going about to happen, she would get strength that she doesn't have. But her strength right now is simply in the obedience to the Lord. And there's just enough strength in saying, yes, Lord, I'll go do that. So she does. Knocks on the doors. She knows that God has put this word in the prophet's mouth. And God is going to see, are we going to go forward in faith? Are we going to take those steps that he says? Well, these are uncomfortable steps, Lord. I don't, why, does, why doesn't so-and-so have to take these steps? Why doesn't my brother or sister have to take these steps? Why don't they have to do this? Why, why, why? God says, I'm talking to you here. This is what I want you to do. So she goes out. And he also says to her, he says, now go get all these, and when you have come back home, verse 4, when you get back to the house, you'll shut the door behind you. She needs God to deal privately with her. It's kind of an odd thing because the public part, she's got to go knock on doors, but then the miracle itself is going to be one-on-one. Remember Jesus said, when you pray to your father, Shut your closet door. We have a corporate prayer this, um, this Saturday night, which you know, uh, Scott mentioned an announcement. That's kind of a public gathering, but, uh, but it's very important for the church to gather and pray. We see this in the book of Acts. The church gathered often, constantly to pray as a group. But Jesus said you also have a personal prayer life, and that prayer life is in your... Cl- You don't have to have a closet. But you get the idea that he said, it's finding alone time. Jesus would go and be alone with the Father. And and he's saying, the prophet says, I'm not even going to be there to perform this miracle. It's going to be accessed by you being alone with God. I'm telling you how God's willing to move, but you have to follow these steps. And then when you get to the place that the miracle is ready to be poured out, you're going to have to shut the door, and no one's going to be there, but you and your sons will see it. The prophet says, I'm not even going to be there to see it happen. And she does it. 
But she does it with a fervent belief, with an assurance. Alexander McLaren said this, um, and this speaks to kind of that we have a faith-based motivation in the things that we uh, do and respond to, to the word and the will of God. He said, only remember, speaking of this woman, that desire which brings God, that desire which brings God must be more than a feeble, fleeting wish. Wishing is one thing. Willing is quite another. Lazily wishing and strenuously desiring are two different postures of the mind. The former gets nothing. The latter gets everything. It gets God and with God all that God can bring. So in other words, when God gives the final instructions, do them with fervent spirit. You almost have to lay aside. We talk about this all the time. Faith it instead of fake it. Right? To lay aside your feelings and say, I'm just going to do this with a fervent belief that if God has given these instructions, the healing is in the instructions of God, not in God explaining all the details. Because he doesn't explain the details. We sometimes get to see that after the fact, which is great that we do because it builds our faith. Last thing we want to look at before we come to a close. I titled that last point, Empty Then Amazed. So she does what the prophet says. She shuts the door in verse 5. She shuts the door and from behind her and her sons brought the vessels to her. And she begins to take that little flask that, again, I'm of the mindset that this was more than likely her husband's anointing oil flask. Remember, he didn't leave her any money, any inheritance. So she starts to take that little thing he had. She starts pouring it, as the prophet said, into these much larger jars, different shapes, different sizes, different containers from all over her neighbor. She starts pouring them in one vessel after another. Can you imagine the excitement? It's at, after the first jar gets, you know, the boys, her sons, are, most scholars believe her sons were pretty young, so let's say they're 10 and 11 or whatever. Their eyes are going to be as big as saucers. They're looking at each other like, well, that was pretty cool. If it worked on one, let's see if it'll try another. just keeps coming out. You know, if you have kids, when something cool starts to happen, they're not like adults. They get way more excited about it. They act like it's crazy. You know, they just start fighting over who's going to hand the next jar. Keep pouring them out. Keep pouring out. This is awesome. They're having a blast. You know, the healing is coming as it's being poured out. Can you, can you sense what's going on in the room there? It's just God and them. And this oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And the whole time, every jar, give another one, give another one, filling them all up. That little flask was all her husband had left, but that little flask had a direct pipeline to heaven. It was like, you know when you go to the bank and you put that thing in the tube and it it goes through the tube to the other, and then I used to love it as a kid. I'd reach across my parents. Can I slam that thing in there and hit the button, you know? Did any other kids like that? That thing was, it's still pretty awesome. You know, now the prescriptions do it too. You go to CVS and everything. But that's kind of like the flask was tied to this pipeline to heaven. And little did she know that her husband did leave a retirement plan in the form of God had attached it to that little flask. Her faithful husband, what he left behind, reflects both of them being covered in the unseen realm. In the unseen realm, they were covered. What looked like an empty bank account, what looked like an empty house, 
what looked like emptied feelings of grief, uh, grief um, God had stored up this oil for this specific day and this specific pouring out. And by the way, God has some hidden oil for you too. He has some hidden oil for me. He has some hidden oil for you. And it comes through following his word. He says, I've got some hidden oil for you. Don't be misled by the lies of Satan and by, by your own feelings and all the things that other people will say. And if you don't do this, you'll never survive. That's what the world tells you. You must have this much in the bank, and you must have this, you must have that. It's all a lie. They can't protect anything any more than anybody else. God has some hidden oil for you, and he has the hidden work of the Holy Spirit. But there, there's a little bit more here, and we'll come to a close in just a second. These empty jars also represent what God wants from us. Vessels that he can fill. Vessels that he can fill. Spurgeon said this, and I love this quote by him. It's so on the money. It is not our emptiness, but our fullness, which can hinder the outgoings of free grace. It is not our emptiness, but our fullness that can hinder the outgoings of free grace. All the fullness of pride, our fears, our excuses, our failures, our self-pity, our self-reliance, our lack of trust, our resistance, our constant questioning of the Lord, our uncertainties, they have to be emptied out before His grace is poured in. All that stuff has to be emptied out. And, and it's just admitting. It's not that you'll do some great change. It's saying, Lord, I admit that this stuff is not right. I'm putting it at your feet. My attitude's not right. This is not right. And God is a really gracious God. He said, that's all I was waiting for. That emptied the jug right there. Now I can fill it. And he wants to take all the tenuous situations, all the seemingly unfixable circumstances that, that we all have them from time to time, and have us follow these simple commands day by day, which we've been talking about this whole year in this church, being while becoming. God just wants us to be in the moment of obedience right now. He says the, the next step will take care of the next step according to his unseen realm. And to continue to grow in faith. And as James said, hey, if we lack faith, and every hand should go up if you say, if I said, do you lack faith, every hand should go up. You, no one in this room has as much faith as they could have. If you lack faith, James said, ask of God, who gives liberally, who can pour a whole lot of jug, can he? Ask of it. But let's be assured of it. Let's be assured that if we empty and we ask, God will fill. If we empty and we ask, and finally, as we hang on his hand, holding on to the hand of God, he'll hold on to us, but we need to hold on too. We're not supposed to let go. He won't let go of us, but we also need to do our part in making sure that we stay. Jesus gave this very specific command, abide in me. That part's on us. He, didn't have, he said, I will not cast you out, but you must abide in me. Amen? That part is a, what he's saying is in the will of our minds, we say, Lord, I'm willing to stay right where you say, if you, this is your instructions, this is your word, I will stay my will align in your will. I will do that which you are asking me to do. And so we abide, we obey, we say, yes, Lord, I'll lay these things down that I can be filled. And he will pour out refreshing 
on our life. And I want to close with this quote from Spurgeon as well. Speaking of this, uh, this same woman, he said this. She did what she was commanded to do. She did it in faith. And the result answered the end. In other words, she, in the end, her neighbors could all look back and say, whoa, none of us saw that coming. God takes care to deliver his servants in ways that exercise their faith. He would not have them be little in faith, for faith is the wealth of the heavenly life. Faith is the wealth of the heavenly life. And so her husband had lived that way. She was now living that way. The neighbors could see that way. And it was a witness. Everyone was amazed. She was amazed. Children were amazed. I believe even Elisha was probably amazed. He, you know, no matter what part he played in it, to see all this happen. And I believe God wants to do amazing things in our lives. And many times we, we look around the room and say, there's nothing, and God says, there's a little flask there that I'm going to do something with if you would be quiet and hear me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just bow before you. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you're still pouring out your spirit to those that are listening to your voice. And Lord, even in this room, whether people have issues of grief or whether they have areas of frustration, it doesn't matter, Lord. We can empty those things at your feet and you fill us. And in some ways, in steps and means that we don't quite understand, but Lord, we learn to trust that your ways are perfect. And I ask, Lord, that you would just pour out your grace and your healing oil on each and every person that's here this morning and those that are watching online. Lord, we know that all of us, we need your touch in so many ways. And so we thank you that you love us and your faithfulness is there. And Lord, we pray that we would indeed grow in faith. We ask you, as James said, to, to grant us more faith, that we would trust and obey, for there really is no other way to be happy and joyful in Jesus. It's your name that I pray.